Um, if you would, uh, turn with me to the book of Luke. We're in a series that's entitled, Mary, the Mother of Jesus, and today we're going to talk about Joseph, the father of Jesus, and he's going to serve in some sense as a proxy to be able to look at some things that show up in his story um, that help us see our own faith and maybe some of our hidden assumptions a little bit better, but we see in Luke kind of the birth narrative of Jesus, we're going to hear this a lot this Christmas, but in Luke chapter 2, Uh, It begins with a decree that goes out to take a census. And so Luke chapter 2 verse 1 says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken in the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So this is historical. Uh, The governor, basically the the Romans had taken direct control over Syria and, and Judea. And, and they, for tax purposes, wanted everybody to go register. And so this is something that happened uh, probably around 6 AD, somewhere in that time period. And so everyone went to his own town to register. And so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, uh, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David. Now, we would say go down because on our maps, going from Nazareth to Bethlehem would be going south. Um, but evidently the Bible talks more uh, elevation and stuff like that. So they're going to go up to Jerusalem uh, the, the way it was seen in those days uh, to, to Bethlehem, the town of David, right outside of Jerusalem. Uh, so they went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and he was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there's no room for them in the end. So what we've got is Joseph in this story um, coming in here in the book of Luke for the first time. And Joseph uh, and Mary were both from Nazareth. So just given a little historical context to begin with, uh, Nazareth is up north about 40 to 50 miles, depending on which road you take from the, the Sea of Galilee. And Nazareth... In those days, I've got a couple pictures for you. Uh, if you go there now, um, this is called uh, St. Joseph's House. It's a, it's a church over what they believe to be the carpenter shop or the house of Joseph in Nazareth. And so there was a church built here in the Byzantine area, uh, era that was destroyed. Then uh, the Crusaders came in and rebuilt a, a church here when... They got pushed out and the Ottoman Turks came in. Uh, That was destroyed. And then a bunch of um, Franciscans, I think it was, bought uh, the plot from the Ottoman Empire and built a church there um, and then was rebuilt again. And that's what stands there today. If you go down beneath it, you can find the remains of what they believe to be Joseph's house and workshop. This is kind of a ritual bath. Uh, You can see, I don't know if you can or not, but there's... Tiles in the bottom, uh, mosaic tiles that would have been from the Byzantine era when they would have used this as a ritual bath or or like a baptismal almost. Um, This would have been more of a storeroom in the day of of Joseph. And um, here's a map of Nazareth from up above or a picture from up above. And you can see this is the the big dome on the church uh, or the Basilica of the Annunciation 
which I think I showed you pictures of a couple weeks ago, at the bottom of that is Mary's house, right? So Mary's house and where the angel appeared to her is at the bottom of this church here. St. Joseph's is this one right here. So you're looking at a good, not a stone's throw, but maybe like a slingshot away. Uh, and you get this idea that this is, this is the heart of Nazareth back 2,000 years ago that would have been a small, um, a, a small town uh, up there in the Galilee region. And so it's an interesting thing when you go and see the layers of history. I mean, talking about Crusader age and the Byzantine age and all the way back, we just don't really find that. When, when I dig in my backyard, I'm not really finding um, mosaic tile floors, right? Um, be cool if I was. Uh, but you have all these layers of history, and you begin to realize it sets the story in context. You've got a young man uh, or a man who's, who's begun his profession, and you've certainly got a younger woman, and they know each other, they're known to each other, they're, they're pledged to be married, um, and she comes down with child because the angels visited her and said that God is going to bring about um, this child, the Savior, the one that was foretold about. So you have an interesting thing going on here. This is a mosaic of what comes next, which is really uh, the angel then visiting um, Joseph. Because it's a fascinating thing when you look at what happens with Joseph and, and what the story really looks like to him. Joseph was what they called a technon. And if you were to write it out, it resembles a lot of uh, words. I don't know. Am I going to be able to draw? Maybe. I'll give it just a minute. I'll just keep doodling while I'm talking. and There we go. Uh, so technon, um, if, if you do the transliteration, uh, um, it's, a, it's a skilled worker. So a, a, a carpenter or a craftsman um, or like a builder. And when we say carpenter a lot and it gives this kind of sense of what a European carpenter would have been, right? And we've kind of borrowed that into what we think of when we talk about an American carpenter, which is, is very heavy on wood. And um, Joseph would have probably been just as skilled in stone, which was the primary building element in Nazareth and certainly most of what we would call Israel today, that stone would have been one of the, the kind of predominant things you'd have been working with, even if you were involving wood in that. And so he's a technon, uh, he's a carpenter, he's a, a craftsman that way, an artisan. We get the word technology from um, technos, uh, which is, is really, so technology is the study of, um, of uh, drawing a blank. It's the study of uh, craftsmanship. It's the study of, it's been a long time since shop class, industrial arts. So it's the study of industrial arts, which is funny because we came up the word, with the word really before we had the digital age in like Silicon Valley. So the word technology that we think about with kind of all the, the gadgets and gizmos now digitally actually has a lot more to do with the industrial arts. So uh, Joseph's a technon, um, technology, um, technos, uh, all of this really is this kind of skilled industrial worker, 
um, craftsman, artisan. So Joseph is in this town. We've got him pledged to be married to this girl. Now she comes up pregnant. And we're really wondering what's going to happen here because um, his intention is, is to break off this engagement or break off this marriage because of this child. So we read about that in Matthew. So if you just turn a couple chapters over uh, to Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament, we see what the angel says when he comes to Joseph. Chapter 1, verse 18. And this is how, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, uh, other translations will say because he was a just man, and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. If he were to divorce her publicly, she would be open to being stoned for adultery. So if he was to publicly say, she's with child, it's not my child, um, then the religious leaders could very well have come, taken her, and stoned her to death as punishment for being found to be in adultery. And so Joseph, being a just man, not wanting to see this happen to her, has it in his mind that he's going to put her away quietly. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. Uh, but after he'd considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said this, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, that the virgin will be with child, and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and then he gave him the name Jesus. So that's really the two passages we see of Joseph. There's a brief mention, but the last Joseph shows up um, being talked about as being alive or being figured in in any kind of a way to the, the story is in Luke chapter 2. I mean, it's a fascinating thing what Joseph's role is in this whole story with Jesus, with Jesus and Mary, with the birth of the king. Um, and it's, it's not much, and it's right here at the beginning of the Gospels. So I'm going to take two things from this passage in Matthew, and I want to relate them to what it says about gender. Because I think that Joseph, who, by the way, in the Catholic Church is the patron saint of workers. So if you're a worker, if you consider yourself a worker, um, the patron saint of workers is Joseph. Um, but in many ways, I think he embodies something uh, or typifies or, or symbolizes something that is more common and more true to a lot of us than what we realize. Um, faithful or devout people living in a Nazareth, around Nazareth people, um, common people, looking to serve and submit to what God's plan would be in our lives. So the first part is this. Um, Joseph looked, because he was a just man, um, to, to divorce her quietly. 
because otherwise she could have been stoned. It's a profound thing. Turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. A passage that is always taught in isolation from, from uh, many of the other aspects of Jesus' ministry. But John chapter 8, it's a story that in different early translations or, or manuscripts, copies of the Bible that were found either didn't show up or showed up in different places, uh, which tells us that it was a part of the oral tradition of Jesus, that this was something that was known about him, taught about him, and didn't show up in, in one of the early manuscripts, and they were trying to figure out where it goes because it would have come from the Apostle John and, and his teachings in and around Ephesus and the community um, that first had this gospel. But in chapter 8, we read this story that's familiar to many of us. It says this, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he prepared again in the temple courts. Uh, he, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. By the way, um, it's, it's interesting. I've started trying to do this in the last couple of years to talk to women, especially in the justice world, and just say, I'm not a woman. Um, help me understand through your eyes what some of the issues are with gender in the world. I've talked to my wife this way. And one of the words that comes up a lot is vulnerability. And it's something I never thought about. But when I talk to women, I hear this word vulnerability come up a lot that um, to be a woman is to oftentimes feel vulnerable. Um, many times to feel scared in a city or if you're alone on public transportation uh, or if you're alone at night and there's a group of, of men or boys. And I never had really put myself in that position, but I started to try to empathize with that a lot more. Um, and then when you're a woman and you're being gawked at uh, or, or talked about or being made fun of by men and who seem to have this power because they're men or because there's a strength there that, that you lack. And so this word vulnerability comes up a lot. We begin to read this passage and now I want you to picture the story. A bunch of men with power bring this woman forward and listen to that phrase. And they made her stand before the group. You have to get the picture first. Um, a woman fully vulnerable at this point, ashamed at this point, scared at this point, being kind of drugged harshly, put harshly in front of a whole bunch of men, the religious leaders, and is going to be kind of standing there as they have a talk or a debate about her, all of which uh, happens as many of them have stones in their hand, literally minutes away from possibly stoning her to death. It's incredible vulnerability in this situation. So they made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, to, to accuse Jesus. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. Like, he doesn't even jump to words. He settles himself. He calms himself. He, he probably has so much inside 
about the whole thing that he just doesn't even use words really to communicate. He just stills the whole thing, bends down, takes his finger, begins to write in the dirt, a lot going through his mind. Then he straightens up to them and says, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Okay, a couple things. Um... Have you ever seen a professor or a public speaker or somebody on TED Talks or a politician at a rally get asked a difficult question to, instead of straightening up right away, stealing their face and powerfully using oratory to go back with all the emotion? When was the last time you saw someone in that situation um, curl themselves down take a knee and start scratching in the ground, in the dirt with their finger. There's something so different going on in this situation than what we would expect if this was just a religious um, debate. I think something so different. Um, Jesus always answered the questions right away. He would use a parable. They'd say, Jesus, what about this? And he says, there once was a man was going down to Jericho, and he got beat up. And then this man came by and didn't help him. And then this man. Jesus always answered the question. This time, he looks at the men after a long period of doing what none of us would, would think of or, or be able to imagine somebody doing in this situation, and he doesn't address her issue. He just looks at them in the eye to the degree that the older ones that are more self-reflective begin to walk away first. And he says, really? Which one of you is without sin? And leaves it hanging. Because if you're in the position to where you can judge the sin of another, then, then go right ahead. But which one of you is without sin? He doesn't even expound on it. Um... And so I, I've heard this passage taught a lot of times. I heard it taught in seminary by people that wanted to say the law was still very much at work in Jesus' day. And so here's how this gets interpreted. This gets interpreted this way. It's um, Jesus never actually let her off. This is, this is how it's been explained to me. So Jesus never actually said, no, don't um, stone her because uh, Moses' law was wrong. Uh, what gets said is, um, which one of you can stone her, has the right to stone her, and nobody does? Well, if they don't condemn you, neither do I, because I have the ability to condemn you because I'm without sin. And so if they're not going to stone you, you know what? I'm not going to stone you. You can go. But it's very legal in what's transpiring. And I think everything about the situation um, is so radically different than a bunch of white men theologian trying to explain how the law is still at work in this passage. Because what I think is going on here is that Jesus is looking at this woman and saying, that's my mom. That's my mom. 
That was what I grew up with, with people debating whether my mom should have been drug in and stoned according to the law. That's my dad who took her in and covered her and protected her. That's the story that somehow God was working through in my life. And you're going to bring her in and stand her up in front of you guys. And you're going to expect me to treat this as if there's not a human element involved. As if God can't be working through this. As if this is some kind of a power play between men. And not that someone's life is in the balance here. And there's a whole hypocrisy that's being, being brought into this. Because where's the guy, by the way? Adultery usually takes two. Usually, I, you know, maybe always. I don't know. And so I think that there's something fascinating about the story of Joseph. And that when, when Jesus looks at this woman, not only does he see his, his mom, how could he not? But that he also is living out the testimony of his dad. That before his dad ever even heard from the angel, this man was going to try and do justly by this woman. To try and protect, even if the, the marriage was going to be off or even if this covenant was going to be severed, to still try and protect and do justly so that she would not, in some sense, be, be uh, vulnerable or exposed publicly or persecuted for whatever Joseph didn't understand was happening with her. There's something going on here that's bigger than just our theological back and forth. There's something going on here about vulnerability. There's something going on here about gender as well. And the second thing is this. Um, by the way, so I, I was thinking, I asked Tamara, uh, you know, you go to Thai food downtown, you know how you ask like for whatever and whatever you ask for because people like me can't take spice because we're weak. Um, and uh, so they go, what, what spice level do you want on pad thai, which isn't even spicy to begin with, right? And level one through five. You know what I'm talking about? Level one through five. So that was my question this morning. I'm like, in wrestling through and praying through the sermon today, it was, um, how saucy is it supposed to be? <laughs> and I don't know the answer to that question yet. Um, let there's something sexist in the Protestant world that I don't think is quite all the way there in, in the Catholic world. I'm not an expert, and I, I can't speak to the Catholic world. I'm sure many would say there's something in the Catholic world that's sexist. I know it's there in, in the Protestant world. Um, that's where I spend most of my days. And... We look at the Catholics, and, and Joan of Arc is a saint. And we have this kind of subtle, like, silly Catholics. Like, really? Joan of Arc? I mean, isn't that just kind of a fun story when you're a kid? Um, and she's like a patron saint of France because she, sa she saved this battle and this siege that allowed Charles the whatever second to become king. And then we kind of do this American racist thing where we're like, silly French. Like they needed a woman to come and win that battle. I mean, really, you know, only the French are going to have, you know, the woman save them, you know. Um, and then the Catholics, you know. So, and there's something subtle going on in there that we're betraying an idea 
that somehow men are more important than women. And if I can draw again, which you never know if that's going to work, and I can't even erase. Uh. Nope. Uh, Yep. So here's the thing. We've, We've... We've been taught and, we, and we, we read that Christ is the head of the husband who's the head of the wife. So Christ, husband, wife. Um, now if we understand headship, I think this really means about sacrifice and protection and I believe it wholeheartedly. If that's what it means. I, I think that men should open doors for women when they can Uh, at restaurants or in the mall. I think um, women and children should get put on the lifeboats first. I think it's, if not for the woman, to train the man to be a sacrificial man who understands the stewardship and the responsibility given to men. In other words, I, I believe even if a woman can open her own door, that that kid or that teenager should do it because it teaches him to be sacrificial, okay, to put himself in the line of fire. If this is what we're talking about, then I'm okay with it. The problem is, is we flip to it and we say, um, we, we put it in under the umbrella of importance. And I run into this all the time in the church and with pastors who teach this and are incredibly popular in our culture today. And, and this, this idea of... Um, a biblical manhood that says it's Christ, Hua, uh, who's a man, and then it's men, heck yeah, um, and then there's women. And you know, if you women will serve us uh, so that we can do our job and take care of business, um, then, then, uh, you know, we'll really make this thing, this thing sing, this thing called the church or, or, or fix all the problems in the world that we created in the first place as men. Um, but, but what happens is we've subtly in the Protestant world lived with this kind of a value distinction. We have four daughters. We get asked all the time, are you going to keep trying for a boy? Now, sometimes I think it's just a complete harmless, I mean, sometimes it's just a complete harmless thing. Oftentimes, it's people showing that culturally, we've been patterned to think that there's no higher value than having sons. And we we can say it in safety, that's why it's a transparent kind of reality, right? We can say it safely when we're talking about little babies and little kids and and it's all kind of fun and games and so I don't you know if you've ever come to us and said oh do you hope you I'm not talking about that per se I'm saying how that's a a window to showing our cultural value system that's very much like the world's value system because in China with a one-child policy for decades you wouldn't have survived if you were a girl baby and so a whole generation of Chinese only child boys are looking for brides from all over the world because there's not enough girls in China to marry all these Chinese men because they didn't value the life of girls enough to keep them. 
And we show that we have that subtle same value distinction when we begin to say that. And it's like saying to somebody as an adult, wow, you're a girl. You know, you wouldn't have survived in China. Um, But it's okay. You're in America, so you survived and you're here. Um, And that's really cool. We'd love for you to serve the men um, so so that the men can get on with business. It's true. It's true. And, it's, and we've got to call it out because men and women were created equal in the image of God. There is a quality of worth, a quality of dignity and value. There's, there's a quality there. And so even if men are supposed to sacrifice and, and, and protect that doesn't ch- change and somehow say there's a value distinction here. And so when we as Protestants look at Catholics and say Joan of Arc, really, French, Joan of Arc, really, we're completely forgetting our heritage. Turn back to the book of Judges with me. Judges chapter 4. Tell me how often this has been taught in the Protestant church. Judges chapter 4 says this, and I'll just kind of read, and you'll get the idea. There's a whole story here we don't have time to go into, but uh, this is a period before the kings. So you've got the nation of Israel, and uh, there's no kings really. Uh, It's not this kind of, it's before the time of David really bringing things, or Saul and David. Uh, And so it's the period of the judges. So in this book, you're going to read about Samson and Delilah and Gideon, all sorts of great stuff. But in chapter 4, it's Deborah. Now, this is what it says. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4, book of Judges. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lippidoth, was leading Israel at that time. Leading who? Who was leading what? I'd be okay with a woman president. I think to say out and out that I wouldn't be okay with a woman president purely because of gender, before we even talk about who the candidate is, what their qualifications are, what kind of calling they might have, what kind of wisdom they could bring, to purely say I'm not going to be okay with a woman president in America just because of gender is sexist. God saw fit to have a woman lead the nation of Israel. How can I not be willing to toe that line? So Deborah, prophetess, the wife of Lippideth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, great names back then, can't pronounce any of them, from Kadesh and Nephtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men of Nephtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor, I will lure Sisera, the bad guy, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon Valley and give him into your hands. And Brock said to her, with, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. And very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. Um, but because of the way that you are going about this, you weakling, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. She was a strong woman, able to just look at the general and say, you're, you're, you're weak. 
And guess what? I'm going to take all the glory here, a woman, because you, you, you're not even man enough to lead the army under my direction. So she does it. She's going to take it all. And so now, um, and then the story goes on. And so they route them, they route the bad guys, and then you get a song of Deborah in, in chapter 5. And the song is a fascinating thing. And it talks about how certain people didn't come, but certain people were willing to come. Um, and that war came, and that, verse 9, my heart is with Israel's princes, meaning the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. Deborah was a Nazareth leader that loved Nazareth type of people that were willing to volunteer and to serve the Lord regardless of what their fears were or their prejudices were, whatever they thought, but they were willing to get on with what God's plan was. And so when God used her as a judge to deliver his people from the hand of the captor and that there were certain people willing to get on with that story, that these were the people that got celebrated. So when we get back to Matthew, where's all this coming from? All this is coming from this. You've got Joseph, who one, starts out just, who two, gets a, a dream that says this. Joseph, son of David, Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. And you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the prophet had wrote. And so Joseph woke up and he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. And he took Mary as his wife. Here's the story. The angel's already come to Mary. Mary, you favored one. God has chosen you. Blessed for all generations is going to be your name. At you is ground zero. God's plan of salvation, you're going to be the absolute closest person to that. You're going to, give, you're going to bear and give birth and then nurture this child, um, Jesus, who is going to save the world from the sins. This is what's going to happen, and you've been chosen. You were foretold about. I don't remember Joseph being foretold about. Mary was foretold about, and, and now the one that was spoken about is you, you peasant girl. This is crazy stuff. So the angel comes and says this to Mary. And then the angel comes to Joseph and says, um, you're about to put her away because, you know, it, it's a bit awkward. Your friends are talking. It would shame you. You would lose stature. You would lose your good standing in your community. Um, your greatness kind of would be diminished and all that. So you're making plans to go this way. Guess what? Uh, change of direction. You're supposed to take her as your wife. Bear the insults. Um, uh, stand in that gap and protect her. Be a covering for her because I'm going to do something remarkable with her. The child she's uh, with was conceived of the Holy Spirit. So here's, here's what I get from that. God's primary plan is through Mary. God comes to Joseph and says, I need you to serve the plan that I'm doing through, through Mary, through your soon-to-be wife. That's my plan for your life. Um, what if 
if you're married, what if God's primary plan isn't with you, husband, but with your wife? And the most obedient thing you could do or the most in line with what God's calling you to do is for you to serve the plan that he's doing through your wife. Have we ever asked that question? I mean, we, we pray, God, what is your will for my life? And I think we're taught as men to think that God's got a primary will for my life. All men think they're going to play Hamlet in the school play. I don't, know, I don't know any man who goes, God, let me be the tree with the face that sticks out um, in the back of the school play and serve that way. We all kind of pray thinking that at any minute God's going to let us in on this plan that he's been keeping secret from us where we really get to be Braveheart. And, and we really get to be the greatest, manliest, most central to God's plan person that there is. And we live our lives as men looking for that moment where we're going to break out and it's going to be all about us. But guess what? Not everyone gets to play Hamlet and God's story is not always primarily around you, the husband, or the man. And so I ask this question. What if God's primary plan is with your wife and his will for you is to sacrifice for what he's doing through her? Now, I don't know whether it's at home or in the workplace whether it's with your own family or adopting or whether it has nothing to do with kids, whether it has to do with, I don't know what it could be, but there are, I, I would guess, many men sitting here where God's more dominant plan is gonna come through your wife than through you. And for you to get God's will for your life would be to understand or to recognize how God is moving in her and to try to come along and to support my daughter, um, Esther, um, is unlike most people. She's never had a bad day in her life. And she's just a little spark of light, right? And so she wanted to be in the play, the, the, the Jingle Jam play, so the, the Christmas play. And so she ran up to Linda and said, I want to play the manger that gets to hold baby Jesus. And she kept doing this. So for like a day... She, she came up to me that, um, that night and she goes, you know, can you help me practice playing the manger? Um, and then, of course, I told the church, like, well, it wasn't really like a European manger per se, but more of a cutout in, in the earthen floor. And then it completely ruined it for her. She's like, I can't, how do I be like dirt floor? And I'm like, I'm like well, look, it's all, it all works. It's a representation of the manger scene. It's all good, you know. And, but so she wanted to play the manger. Um, we need to be, we, we need to somehow realize that we've got this American individualism thing going where greatness is what we all aspire to. And in aspiring to our greatness, it colors our prayers or what we're hoping to hear from God. You know when you used to hear from your parents, you would tune out everything you didn't like and just wait for that answer, yes, you can spend the night at your friend's house. Didn't matter what all the qualifications were, you were just waiting for one thing. We do that with God. We tune out so many things that he's trying to say to us because we're, we're waiting to just hear that, yes, you have permission now to go be great and for it to really all be about you. And, and greatness, as it turns out in Scripture, often looks a lot different than our 
picture or our understanding of greatness. You've got the ultimate insider in Jesus becoming this outsider. You've got Nazareth, the town that looks at the, the town that was the, you know, for the king of kings. And the whole time Jesus is growing up as the king of kings. And, and you've got Bethlehem outside of Jerusalem. And you've got everything that says earthy or organic or weakness, that what God's doing really about great things doesn't look like the world's version of great. It's, it's this kind of subversive plan that God has where it comes up. And my greatness is not going to look like um, worldly power, worldly wealth, worldly pleasure, worldly influence. It's probably going to look a lot more like sacrifice and being able to be used in God's story or plan as he's trying to unfold that. And oftentimes, if I read scripture correctly, it's going to be in a subordinate role to somebody else. We, we have this beautiful story of Moses in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, and they're fighting the Amalekites. And um, as he's raising his arms, they win. And when his arms get tired, they lose. And so they literally, uh, Aaron and her, not Ben-Hur, Aaron and her, just the her, um, H-U-R, come underneath his arms and hold his arms up. All day. And I think God was, was teaching because they've been grumbling a lot, the Israelites, against Moses. And I think were, that God was trying to teach the Israelites something that, look, as Moses goes, so go you. That's, that's my plan is that he's going to lead. This person's going to lead. And I need you to submit to that. Everyone can't be running around trying to create a new plan different from my plan. And so I think God was teaching the Israelites something. But there's something fascinating about Aaron and her coming and saying, our role here in this battle is to literally hold the arms of this guy and to serve that guy. And you might be in a, in a ministry role or in a position to where you're really sacrificing or serving or holding up a whole lot of things. And in this culture, you look around and go, isn't there somebody that could help me? A lot rises or falls on me. I can see that. I can see when I go down, it goes down. A lot is rising and falling on me. And I wish that some people, whether younger or people that aren't as involved in ministry or people that have the time because maybe they're empty nesters or whatever, maybe that there would be people that would be arm holders for others of us that are in these spots. And, and we don't tend to always find that as much because we don't talk about submission or serving, um, I think, as often as we should. And so we got to kind of go at different times or maybe throughout my whole life, God's primary plan for me is not to be the victor or the great one running to the, to the front. But if I would really listen, if I'd really look around, there's an opportunity to serve or encourage and that I'm supposed to come up underneath somebody else and hold that arm. And it very well might be a woman or your wife or your mom. And I think we're cutting ourselves short if we think of Antioch and what Antioch can achieve without also asking how is God going to use women in carrying the ministry forward of this church and what we do. And that God might call, might gift, might choose somebody to do some amazing things that other of us have to come around and to serve as we move forward. So somehow we have to look at, I think, these stories and see them set in context. I think we see something incredibly passionate in Jesus when this woman is standing before these men. 
that was very close to home. And I think we got to see something in Joseph getting this, I mean, the angel comes to talk to him. And it's not, you're going to charge a hill. You're going to be the new Joshua. You're going to be the new Moses to set my people free. No, that's going to be done through Jesus, who's the son of God and the son of your wife, Mary. And you're to cover her. And you're to get on board with that plan and to serve it. Because through him, Jesus, and through her and the birth of this child, I am going to bring forgiveness to the sins of the world. And Joseph does what the angel said. And it's not typical and it's not normal, but it ought to be more normal. And we ought to be able to ask those questions and to look into that. So I don't know if I'm just wrestling with a question that no one else is wrestling with, but I don't want to be caught in a world where we're more sexist than the Bible is. Where we see the value and dignity of women latently or, or, or subtly differently than the Bible communicates that it is. Where we're always feeding into this idea that everybody's going to be the hero and everyone's going to play Hamlet and that we don't talk about service and sacrifice and what that could look like more often. Um, and so as we kind of close this series on Mary, looking through Joseph, seeing Mary through a different light and realizing um, maybe some of us husbands need to ask some different questions about what God may or may not be doing through our wives and how we can support that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that Scripture is here to correct my cultural bias or the biases that I carry with me. I thank you for scripture. I thank you for truth. I thank you that you can always point us in help, more helpful directions. And I pray in my own life, God, that you would continue to challenge me, that those of us here at Antioch, we would want to grow more than always hang on to whatever it was we thought we knew or more comfortable with. Let us care more about truth than our own comfort. Let us serve one another. Let us submit to one another. Let us dream about what you can do in the person to the left of us and to the right of us. Let us celebrate when you've got a plan going, even if we're in a supporting role. Father, you're going you're gonna to have to be the one that I think does it through the Holy Spirit. We cannot sanctify ourselves. So thank you for your grace and your working. In Jesus' name.